who will be the next president, Matt Robeson beyond politics? Well, we're not going to actually answer that question, but this is the time of year and the part of the election cycle where really intelligent people who have insights on this question and have models that start to predict what the outcomes will be start to give those answers. And we have one of the very best and one of our very favorite guests on Beyond Politics, Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics and the host of Inside Economics, a really outstanding podcast. And occasionally they let, you know, a lower class of guests come on like me. So Mark, you have just put out, welcome back to Beyond Politics, and you've just put out your Moody's Analytics model for predicting the answer to the question, who will be the next president? And you cleverly titled your analysis, who will be the next president? Great title. I, first of all, I've got to ask, what's a nice economist doing slumming it with us lowlifes in politics? You know, I do forecasts. So I forecast the economy and you can't forecast the economy unless you have some sense of what fiscal policy is going to be. And you can't have a sense of what fiscal policy is going to be unless you have a sense of what government's going to look like on the other side of this election. So we're trying to figure that out, making some assumptions. We try other alternative scenarios. We have to think about all the scenarios here, but you know, our most likely scenario is based on who's going to be president, what's the makeup of Congress going to look like, and what kind of legislation they're going to actually cross the finish line on the other side of the election. That makes all kinds of sense. And I remember when I was on your show, we talked a little bit about this. How do you try to weigh these probabilities of who's going to be there and what pressures are they going to be subject to and what are they going to do? Okay. So I know that people out there just want to know what the model says. That's the world we live in. They want to know the horse race. We're not going to tell them that at first. I want to tease that out a bit because look, models are sure. you know better than anyone. Yeah, we're going to take advantage of the curiosity. Well, advertising or something, you know, or this is a good time to you know, tease a little bit. I, no skipping ahead and no taking bathroom breaks. I could, yeah. Look, models are really only as good as the thinking and the assumptions and what you believe is going to shape the outcomes. That's what I want to dig into first is I want to get your thinking about all of those factors. And then, sure, we can actually let people know what the answer is. So you start out the write-up on your analysis by writing that the economy may not be at the top of voters' minds in every election, but it's rarely less than a close second. Now, Nate Cohn of the New York Times suggested last week that though the, re the relationship between the economy and voter behavior may be weakening, how did you and your team at Moody's think about that relationship between the state of the economy and voter behavior in putting together your model? Well, it could be. Certainly, the dynamics here could be shifting over time. The model we constructed is based on elections back to the 1980 election. So if you look at the relationships between the variables that we're using to try to explain the election outcome, political variables, economic variables, and the outcome, they may not, this election may be different than the kind of the typical election since 1980. Now, we do control for some things that we can control for that might affect that relationship. So for example, voter turnout. So, you know, voter turnout goes to enthusiasm over your candidate, you know, the policies they're espousing, you know, what they're standing for and, you know, how good an entertainer they are, you know, all those kinds of things. And we try to account for that in the modeling that we do. And then, of course, like all models, it's based on assumptions and we're able to move the assumptions up and down and all around and see what that might mean for the election outcome. So, but that's a great point. I mean, the world is dramatically different today than it was 
four years ago, eight years ago, 12, 16 years ago, then the model is not going to be as predictive. It more like the odd doesn't mean it's going to be wrong, but the odds that it might be wrong are higher, obviously. Well, speaking of the economics factor in all of this, and speaking of Nate Cohn, back in December, he wrote, for two years, the public has said that the economy is doing poorly, even though it appears healthy by many traditional measures. This has prompted a fierce debate over whether the public's views are mostly driven by concrete economic factors like high prices or something non-economic, like a bad vibe brought on by social media memes or Fox News. And Paul Krugman has written that the vibe session is over now, based in part on University of Michigan consumer confidence data showing a record jump in how people are feeling about the economy now and what their expectations are like. So two-part question here for you. Is the vibe session over? And how much does that sense of a vibe session matter versus actual hard economic indicators in what people are going to do? Well, I think it's the hard economic indicators. And I don't know that I buy into the vibe session kind of frame. I think what's happened here is uh, people got nailed by the high inflation. Inflation was really high in 2020, first, second half of 21, going into 22, early 23. And for most Americans, they've never seen inflation before ever in their lifetime. And they see this and they go, what the heck is this? And it, it's pretty much across the board, but it's really most pernicious for things that people have to buy. You got it. They have to you know, buy food to put on the table. They have to pay their rent. Uh, you know, when gasoline prices were at record highs, they got to pay to fill the gas tank. And it takes a while for that sting to become less painful financially. You know, and there's, you know, they're still paying a lot more for whatever food item that they focus on, and uh, they're still paying more for rent, even though inflation is back in and the economy is performing well. They still feel that, and it's going to take time for them to get begin to feel a little bit better about it. And then, by the way, Matt, I think they will. All the trend lines here look very good. Inflation is down. Wages or growth is much stronger than inflation. And the staples, the price of staples is flat to down. Gas prices are back down. We're paying a little over $3 a gallon for regular unleaded. That's pretty good. Food prices, food at home, that, has, that hasn't changed at all for the past year. Rents are actually flat to down in most parts of the country. So it feels like we're moving in the right direction. And as time goes by here, I think people... You know, that'll resonate with them. They'll begin to feel it and they'll begin to believe it. And I think that'll affect, you know, obviously the election results. So I think it's just, it's still the economics, the economic data. It's just, you know, that was a very unusual, atypical, unprecedented kind of event that we're still getting over to some degree. Right. It's like it starts snowing in Nicaragua and people are like, what is this? Why is this happening? <laughs> I mentioned at the top of the show that. People have gotten used to the idea of election forecasting, election modeling. Nate Silver made it super popular, especially for Democrats who are like, oh, I love everything you're telling me until 2016, where it was like, why didn't you warn me that this could happen? And there are now a lot of election forecast models out there. There's 538, whatever Nate Silver is doing now that he's no longer at 538. There's UVA, you know, Larry Sabato. There's yours. Now, Nate Silver is a statistician. Larry Sabato is a political scientist. You're an economist. I wanted to ask you, what informs your model and makes it different from those others? I have a feeling the answer is we're economists, duh, but is there something else? Is there a, a, another perspective that you bring to this that makes yours stand out and kind of recommends your approach? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Well, our, our approach is not based on a survey. It's not based on a poll. And I think that's become much more problematic over time. 
the survey responses have gone way down. The people who are responding have changed. They're not representative of the, got the person who's actually going to vote. It's just gotten a lot harder to be a pollster or, or someone who's conducting a survey. Our approach doesn't rely on that in any way. We do uh, include as one of the variables in the model the, pres the change in the president's approval rating, but that's a very minor variable of all the list of variables, uh, factors that are modeled. That's probably at the bottom of the list. Ours is based on what has actually happened at the electoral college level. So we model what's happening state by state over time, going back to the 1980 election. We control for various political factors. I mentioned turnout, but we, we control for third party. We control for incumbency, vote voter fatigue. If a party's been in office more than two terms, it's very difficult to win the next election. Favorite son, approval rating I mentioned, and then a range of economic factors that really impact people's thinking about their own finances, gas prices, the mortgage rate. How is their after inflation income growing or not growing? You know, and we also account for consumer confidence. So those are the variables that we control for. And we then use that to predict the share of the vote that's going to go to the incumbent party state by state. And so you can see, you know, exactly how when we run the model, how whoever's going to win is going to win. What states are they going to win by how much they're going to win and how sensitive those results are to the underlying assumptions that we make. So it's it's data model based. It's not survey based. It's not poll. It's not based on any polls. Right. That's kind of fascinating in a way. It's what Nate Silver would call a fundamentals based forecast. Yeah. And I like the idea, the way Nate Silver controls for noise is through these polling averages, because he concedes upfront that basing your forecasting on polling is subject to an incredible amount of noise. And he goes through a lot of gyrations, not just average, but also trying to weight different pollsters by their performance and accuracy. And he has to do a lot of cleanup. It's turned out to be a pretty effective approach. But he's come out over time with models that lean more on fundamentals like like you do. I like the underlying idea here, which is what you're all trying to do is trying to figure out what's signal, what's predictive, and what's noise. And you're used to doing this in economics because there is so much noise and so much complexity, and you're trying your best to see, okay, what's truly predictive here? And speaking of which, one thing that you do that I heartily endorse is you put the most weight on previous voter performance in each state. A big thumbs up for me on that because only five states have changed the party that they voted for in the last two presidential elections. There's not going to be a lot of variability there. So let's stipulate that. Let's move on. The factor that I do want to talk about is the one that you weight second, which is your expectation of voter turnout. This feels like given that 45 out of the 50 states are almost a given. We almost know for sure what they're going to do. It seems like voter turnout in those swing states could be the whole ball game. ultimately. What do you assume when it comes to voter turnout and why? Yeah, and I think you're dead on. I mean, it's voter turnout in those half dozen swing states that are going to determine this election one way or the other. And by the way, it's not even the state. It's like one county in the state. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm from Pennsylvania. I live in the suburbs of Philly. It's all about Philly. I mean, it's really about turnout in the county of Philadelphia, which is deep blue. 
they're going to vote Democratic, but they it's how many of, the, of those folks actually turn out because that's going to determine the state, which is going to determine by but according to our work, it's going to be PA that's essentially going to determine the election. So it really boils down to that. And what we're assuming is that turnout in this election is going to be the same as turnout in the last election. So in that election, Trump turnout was pretty high. And so we're assuming it's going to be pretty high in this election. Same with Biden's turnout. It was pretty high. It's going to be pretty high in this election. Uh, That seems to be a a really contentious point. I mean, the folks at the Liberal Patriot, John Halpin, Roy Teixeira, uh, actually Halpin's coming on the show next week. They're making the case that you can't rely on Democratic turnout because there seems to be a an enthusiasm session. I don't know, just made that up among Democratic base voting groups. And so your assumption about Trump voter enthusiasm and turnout may be a good one. It's a real open question about, as you say, take Philly, for example, will the turnout in Philly overcome the turnout in the outlying counties where all the weird stuff from the M. Night Shyamalan films happens? Yeah, totally. And in fact, I think the election actually boils down to my wife. She's a Democrat. She's. A- I also think my wife is in charge of everything. So good. We all should. She's a very progressive Democrat. In fact, to the point where, you know, I go, can we cool it a little bit here? What Don't you- send her this show. Yeah. Can we cool, down, cool, cool your jets a little bit? But anyway, it's all, and she's obviously going to vote for Biden if Biden is the nominee, which seems likely. But it's not, that's not the question. The question is, is she going to be contributing? Is she going to be at the poll? Is she going to be knocking on doors? Is she going to go to those meetings that, that political parties organize to figure out strategy to get people to the polling vote, the polling booth? So that's the key. And it's all eyes on her. And I can't, at this point, I'm not sure she's, you know, what the level of enthusiasm is going to be, but that is absolutely critical. And you're right. You know, and we, in the paper that we did to, with the release of the model, we did do sensitivity analysis and said, okay, you know, suppose this assumption we made is not correct. You know, what would actually turn the election? And I won't tell you who wins, but actually who, you know, what scenario on, with regards to these assumptions would turn the election to the other candidate? And a little bit of decrease in enthusiasm on the Dem side sounds like it would have a big effect. And all right, so that gets me to my next question. Yeah. One thing that you brought in that I thought was smart, smart was this idea of political fatigue, you call it. And it's a factor that you say normally would come in for a party that has held the presidency for two terms and is looking to extend. Think like Al Gore after Bill Clinton. And you say that there is a statistical relationship that says at that point, you you got to factor in political fatigue. Now, that might be true as a statistical matter, but What about the fact that Donald Trump is an orange unicorn in American politics? Democrats have been running against him for nine years now. They ran against him in 2022. He has been the chief political villain in every speech and every ad for a long time now. My, My son is 10. For his entire lifetime, Donald Trump has been the bad guy. And he's in the news constantly. He even claims to be the rightful president. And in fact, two thirds of voters going into the polling places or basements in Iowa believe that Donald Trump is the rightful incumbent president. So I'm pushing you a little bit here, but should that be a factor here for this thinking in terms of your wife, for example, should you be treating in the model Donald Trump as 
an incumbent subject to a political fatigue detriment or a voter enthusiasm bonus for Dems. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. I want to take a quick moment to let you know about a podcast that should be familiar to many of you. It's called Talk in Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. The host of that show, the outstanding Corey Nathan, was just a guest with me. He's trying to do the same kind of thing that we're doing here, have reasonable, deep, smart conversations with the kinds of people you want to hear from. David Brooks and Jennifer Rubin and Adam Kinzinger Larry Wilmore of The Daily Show, John Popper of Blues Traveler. I, I got to stop talking about this. I'm, I'm getting jealous. Subscribe, follow, talk in politics and religion without killing each other and help both of us add a little bit more nuance, intelligence, and understanding to American politics. Well, that's a great point. That didn't even dawn on me, but that's a great point. I mean, it, it, we certainly didn't penalize Trump because he is running again. But the idea that he had Biden in between his first term and now the run for the second term. But, you know, you make a case that perhaps in the voter's mind, certainly in President Trump's mind, he's been president for two terms and then the fatigue uh, dummy would kick in. We can certainly run the model to see what that means exactly. You know, what kind of impact that would have on the results. But uh, but I that was, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that. I'm just trying to drag yeah. you back onto the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to entice you to rerun it under my yeah. like rosy assumptions. It's like, yeah. oh, it's the Robeson thumb on the scale version. You know, and lo and behold, the Dems do better. Yeah. Let me let me throw another one at you. This is another pet theory of mine. I think that approval rating is not a dummy variable in a statistical sense, but I think it's sort of a dumb variable. I think that approval rating, I sound like Inigo Montoya here in The Princess Bride. I do not think it means what most people think it means any longer. Joe Biden, if you look at his approval rating, had a super short honeymoon, like, like a five-minute honeymoon. And then his approval rating nosedived to the low 40s within months. And clearly, he hadn't done anything at that point, either positive or negative, to merit such a change, like a 20-point swing, which has been, it's been pretty stable since then, as you point out. And it's worth noting that according to Pew, Biden only gets a 61% approval rating among Democrats today. So it just makes me question, are these Democrats, the 39% who are not approving of Biden, are they going to vote for Trump? It's all in service of asking, is approval rating truly a useful number to factor into this kind of forecast anymore? Yeah, I'll have to say in the modeling we did, we found it to be of all the factors that we included in the model, that is at the very bottom of the list. Mm. Like, get out, it wouldn't make a difference. I mean, it, there, there's one case in history where, you know, I think it was first Bush, you know, his approval rating got crushed. And, it, and that's where we're picking up some statistical significance. But totally agree. I don't know how much weight. The model doesn't put very much weight on it. It's not swinging. In fact, in that sensitivity analysis, you approval his but for to swing the election, the approval rating would have to dramatically decline. I'm starting to give away who's going to win the election, but you'd have to dramatically change. The approval rating would have to go through the floor. It doesn't even seem plausible that you could get there under any circumstance. So I agree with you. I think that it's really on, if there is any benefit there, any explanatory benefit there is really on the margin. Let's talk about your stock and trade for a minute. You factor in the economy, but not just you know, as a broad matter, you actually take a look at numbers in the economy that do matter 
in the model and numbers in the economy indicators that don't really matter in terms of voter decisions, voter behavior. Could you just give us a flavor of what are the economic factors that we should be keeping an eye on because they do matter and what doesn't matter so much? Yeah, the thing I think we should really focus on is the cost of a gallon of regular unleaded. That mm. matters. And you don't need to see a big change in that to swing the election. I mean, right now, I think I mentioned earlier, we're at three, a little over $3 a gallon. We go over four on any consistent basis, you know, not for a week or two, but for a couple, three months, then the election is going to swing, all else being equal. Because, you know, the gas price, it plays this incredibly central role in people's thinking about their own financial situation. Because, you know, something they observe regularly every day, they see it, you know, posted and they fill their gas tank once or twice a week and they feel it. And for a lot of people, it's a big, you know, it's a big item in their budget and there's no way around it. I got to, I got to fill the gas tank. I got to go to work. I got to take my kids to school. So it plays a really central role. And, and really, uh, the other thing is it plays a really central role in inflation expectations, what people think inflation is going to be in the future. So if they see gas prices going up, they go, oh my gosh, inflation is going to be higher in the future. And that's when the Federal Reserve goes on high alert and says, hey, I'm not going to cut interest rates. It may even have to raise interest rates. So, it, and the final thing I'll say about it is I forecast lots of stuff. You know, some stuff I'm really confident in. Like, I'm very confident that, that we're going to get inflation back to target, Fed's target. But some things I'm not so much, oil and gas prices, not so much. That's really tough because there's so many global cross currents there in terms of demand and supply. Russian sanctions, what's going on in the Middle East, the Houthi, you know, what Chinese demand is going to be, whether the, you know, how much oil or is India consuming, what's the frackers here in the U.S. doing? And in, the, in that market, is really on a razor's edge. A little too much supply, you get lower prices like we've gotten over the past year. A little too much demand and you get prices moving north. So I, of all the things that I worry about that the most is the fact that you know, gas prices are, you know, could potentially rise and they don't have to rise you know, a buck a gallon. That's you know, very, very possible. And that would, do a, you know, that would have a significant impact on the election. I'm gonna sneak in one before we get to the big reveal. I yeah. just thought it was interesting. We could just do this as a drive-by. I thought the way you factored in the impact of third-party candidates was interesting because you make an assumption that the third-party vote share is going to be close to 2020. And I just want to point out that talk about things that are really on a razor's edge, like gas prices. Boy, this one is unpredictable. If vote share for third parties is closer to 2016, where Gary Johnson got on the order of 3%, Jill Stein got one and a half percent, but it's really the state by state. She definitively cost Wisconsin for Hillary Clinton, may have had a significant factor in Michigan. Boy, is this a, a roll of the dice. We don't have to say anything about it. I just, I think that's one of those things that's very hard to control yeah, for in a forecast. I think if you're the support of a third party candidate, you have to be, you should explicitly think that you're going to make President Trump, former President Trump, president again. That's the most likely thing that's going to happen. You're, you're not going to be elected president of the United States, but you're going to. Absolutely. What every, every other forecast, every other analysis that I've seen, done, thought about says is, folks, just don't do it. I'm editorializing. Just don't do it. Sorry, RFK. You can take your vaccine denial somewhere else. We'll deal with that another time. Okay. We're here. The moment has arrived. Who's going to be the next president, Dr. Zandi? Biden. We have him winning with 308 electoral votes. It's just, as you may recall, he won by 306 electoral votes the last go around. The, the swing here is he, we, in our modeling, he loses Arizona. Last time he picked up Arizona, 
But this time he picks up North Carolina. Last time he lost it by a little bit to Donald Trump. And that how, that's how you go to 308 to 306. The, there's five states that are within one percentage point, which by our modeling is very close. I mentioned PA, you know, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Georgia, Nevada are all very close and can move one direction or the other. And again, that's based on all the assumptions we made that we dis we discussed, which are a lot of them. And you, you pervade those assumptions to any significant degree, not even to a large degree, you can get a very different kind of outcome. This election is going to be close. I, that is interesting. I guess the actionable intelligence that one would get out of this if you're, you know, a campaign manager type is don't sleep on North Carolina. Go ahead and invest the resources there. Democrats have had a little bit of a Lucy in the football problem with North Carolina in recent cycles. I think Obama was last to win it in 2008 for the Dems, if I'm remembering right. And, you know, it's become even worse than Ohio, which we, you know, we used to chase that dragon for a while and, until yeah. we finally quit, got the monkey off our back. Let me get you out of here on this. You mentioned that the model, the forecast is super sensitive to all kinds of assumptions. And you close out your analysis by saying that there are some factors that really we should watch. And so, you know, tell all our viewers and listeners, what are the handful of things that you would be keeping an eye on in the coming months that could really swing the election? Well, gas prices, the mortgage rate, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, you know, it's sitting at seven. If it stays at seven, Biden will continue, will win. If it goes north of the eight, back up to eight, where it was a couple, three months ago, he's going to have a big problem. And then, of course, the third-party candidacy, very important. That We'll see how that evolves here, you know, in the not-too-distant future. But those are, those, and of course, turnout matters. That's very hard to gauge. That goes to, you know, people's how excited they are or not. But you know, if you get a sense of that's important. But, you know, gas prices, mortgage rates, and let's watch what's going on with third-party candidates, uh, candidates. I'll add one of my own, which is, you know, obviously everything you've done here is fundamentals-based, not polling-based. I would keep an eye on what starts to happen as we get into the spring and summer and pollsters shift to likely voter models for people who follow that versus registered voter models. They're going to be making tons of assumptions as well, but I think you're going to want to see across those averages the people who are deemed most likely to vote and what those numbers, what those matchup numbers start to look like. Everything you're seeing now, throw it out the window, not very predictive. Nothing is very predictive, except for the model that belongs to Mark Zandi. My, I, I, I've labeled you the people's economist just because you're so popular. You're absolutely everywhere. People should check out Inside Economics. If you have even a passing interest in economics and you think it, it matters, it does. It's fantastic. It's so interesting. Check out Inside Economics and everything that Dr. Zandi does. Mark Zandi, thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. You're the best, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'll end by saying, you know, I strive to be 51%. Right. I'm just saying. So <laughs> yeah. hope, hope springs. You know what? I'll tell you how you can know if you're right. If yeah. your wife says so, yeah, that's what you know, I go by. It's really all, all right. that matters. All right. <laughs> Take care, Mark. Take care.